When Jesus takes the scroll from his father, it will be the beginning of the end. We firmly believe that Jesus is coming back bodily and in person, but so far he hasn't. So rather than dissect when we think that might take place, we will focus on what the Bible has told us all along, to get ready for the day when our inheritance is revealed. So for the next seven Sundays, we are in a series I've called Dear Church. And I think it explores a text which is probably one of the most theologically, pastorally, and personally rich texts in all of the scripture. I will not do them justice, but we'll try. If Jesus visited Peninsula Community Church, what would he say about us? Would he be impressed by the things that impress others? Would he comment on our buildings? Would he mention our attendance? Would he notice how much money was given last week? Would he feel like an outsider? What does Jesus think about our church? Well, we don't have to wonder because he's going to tell us every single Sunday for the next seven weeks. In these seven letters, our Lord pays a pastoral visit to seven different first century local churches. In each case, he tailors a message fitting just for them, for what they needed in their situation in that moment in history. They are all actual churches in Asia Minor, the western part of modern Turkey. They're struggling with persecution and temptation, some to moral compromise, some to spiritual compromise. Some, like Smyrna, are facing more persecution than the other ones. Some, like Thyatira, face moral debauchery within the church. Some live in the most enviable position economically, Laodicea. They receive the harshest warning. This is really, can you hear that? Or is it just me? I'm hearing terrible feedback. Not terrible, obviously. If you're not hearing it, it's not terrible. But it's a little bit of feedback for me. I'm echoing. <laughs> but reading Revelation 2 and 3 is, is like reading somebody else's mail. And these, are, these churches are struggling with real problems. And even though 2,000 years separate us from them, their issues aren't much different from ours. And in these seven letters, we are going to see these churches, but we're also going to see ourselves in a new light. And I think we need this series because it's easy to think, especially now as life gets a little bit more normal, that as long as we're busy, everything's okay. But there are times in our ministry together that I have wondered, how are we really doing? And it's hard to know the answer to that question when you're traveling down in the trenches themselves. We tend to figure out the answer by the numbers, right? We count nickels and noses, as they say. And those things matter. The offering tells us something important about us. And the number of people who show up say us something too. People always vote 
with their checkbook or their feet, one way or another, every Sunday. We measure our churches that way. But Jesus evidently doesn't do that. So what is Jesus looking for when it comes to his churches? These seven letters provide, I think, an important answer. And so with that as background, we're in Revelation chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. We begin with the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, verse 1. Let's look at the city. Let's start verse chapter 2, verse 1. It says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The angel, probably better translated messenger, the one delivering the message. It's the one who brings it from the Savior to the church. And the first letter went to Ephesus, which is actually a major league city in the Old Testament world. I mean, it's the New Testament world in, in those days, first century. It is really second only to the city of Rome in terms of its wealth and power. It was because of its location as a port city on the shores of the Aegean Sea that it, it really became the marketplace of Asia Minor. It was built at the mouth of the Caister River. The only problem is this river came from the mountains, was full of silt, and so it, it kept bringing the silt down from the mountains. And two times in history, they had to dredge the harbor so they could still have a harbor. But as the years passed, even though they deepened it twice, they had to relocate the city. They had to move it. It's, today, it is, what, 11 miles from the coastline. That's a long way. I would assume a lot of us here have been to Ephesus. It had temples built to Claudius and Hadrian and Severus. But the major attraction in, in the city of Ephesus was its temple to Artemis, or in Latin, Diana. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, they say. It was about four times the size of the Parthenon. If you've been to Athens, you've been up to the Parthenon. This thing was four times as large. It's huge. And inside the temple, there's a statue of Artemis, or Diana. They say the statue was black and small and rather coarse. You read in Acts 19, verse 35, that, that the popular belief of the day was this statue fell from heaven itself. And, and so with the fanatic attitude, basically, the citizens of Ephesus, they worshipped, they honored a rather ugly statue. In the past, people have written about temple prostitutes in this temple of Artemis. Lately, the scholars are saying, no, that's probably not quite as true. They, these priestesses, they serve for a short time, but probably with dignity and honor and integrity. Three major roads met in Ephesus, making it a hub of activity. The port would be there, and then it became the gateway to, to the Roman provinces to the east. This is a bustling cosmopolitan center. Could be up to 250,000 people living in Ephesus. And we know quite a bit about the Ephesian church from the New Testament. Paul's first visit to Ephesus in Acts 18 wasn't very long. Apollos was there as well. And then Paul comes back to Ephesus. And when he gets back there, he finds a group of disciples who were familiar with the baptism of John, but had never been baptized in the name of Jesus. They'd probably heard about that from Apollos. And so when he comes... He begins to teach. He teaches for three months in the synagogue there in Ephesus. 
And then from the synagogue, he moves to the school of Tyrannus, and he teaches there for two years. And as a result, a lot of people are saved. And what happens to the gospel? It spreads. How come? Because this is a cultural commercial center. There's roads. The gospel goes out into Asia Minor. Paul, it's a strategic location. The sons, the, there were seven sons of Sceva, who was a, a Jewish priest in Ephesus, a rabbi. And he tries to cast out demons, if you recall the story, by using, you know, the power of, of whatever Paul had. And it was at that moment that, that they had a little problem because then the demons weren't listening to that. So they just came back and got into Sceva and his sons. It was not a pretty sight. But they, but they learned the difference between magic and Christianity. And many of these new converts, they wanted to break with, with this magic and their pagan past. So they burned their books. They said it was worth up to 50,000 pieces of silver. They burned all these books. And the gospel flourishes in Ephesus. And because of the size of the church and its dedication to, to the scriptures, it began to be a problem for the silversmiths, if you recall, who made the idols everyone was coming to buy and sell and trade and use in their worship. And so a mob comes. Now, the leaders keep Paul from getting attacked by the mob, but eventually what happens is, and you know the story, Paul has to leave, and he goes north then to Macedonia. And so he, he, he leaves from there. His last trip to Ephesus, he's trying to get to Jerusalem, but he, he wants to get there by Pentecost. And so he doesn't really want to take the time to go into Ephesus. He knows too many people there. So that he tells the elders to meet him in Miletus. And listen to his final words. I think they are instructive for us as we get into Revelation 2. Paul writes this in, in Acts 20, verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come and in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, wise men will arise and distort truth in order to draw away many disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And Paul was right. He later has to write to Timothy, go to Ephesus, help them. They're having some trouble. Deal with these false teachers. He tells Timothy how to, how to deal with the leadership in the church as well. The warning he gave to the elders at Miletus comes true. And tradition tells us John ends his life, or toward his elderly days, he spends in Ephesus. And this letter to Ephesus was written by John while he was in exile at Patmos. What a church. What a history of teaching, of godly leadership they'd had over the years. So the letter opens, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. The letter opens with a word of commendation. Jesus says, you know, we're qualified to do this. Verse 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
Jesus is qualified to write this letter because he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are, are the angels, the messengers to these seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. What a word for a beleaguered pastor. Where's Jesus? He's walking amidst his church. He's walking among them. You are held as a church by the Lord himself. He knows you. He sees you. He hasn't forgotten you. And there's much to applaud about this church in Ephesus. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. He says, I know what you're doing. I know your deeds. They had a great zeal, a great energy to do things for God. It was a busy, hardworking, service-oriented congregation. They did lots of stuff. They didn't just sit around patting each other on the back. They were eager to serve the Lord. They had a church calendar brimming with activities and Bible studies, I'm sure. But that's not all. It says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. They wouldn't put up with false teachers in their midst. How often is that said in the church these days? Not very often. I mean, if a pastor says Jesus is the only way to heaven, he's called a bigot. Today, it's much more fashionable to keep your negativity out. You know, we're trying to reach these people. Don't be negative. Don't want to offend the people you're trying to reach. The church of Ephesus sort of didn't care, I guess. They preached the truth. They tried the false prophets and the apostles, and they threw them out of the congregation if they were found to be false. They rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans down in verse 6. We don't know a lot about these people. It seems to be a strange sect of Christianity that, that they taught that freedom in Christ meant you can do anything. The more you sin, the better. They wanted the church to be religiously pluralistic. He wanted to hook up with everybody in the surrounding pagan world. And they compromised on sexual purity, saying things like, well, my body's mine. I can do with it whatever I want. God doesn't care. I'm still in good standing with him. And Jesus says he actually hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I thought Jesus was this, you know, love, peace. He hates here. It's very politically incorrect of him. But he hates that view. That's the Jesus of the New Testament. He loves and he hates. Verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The church in Ephesus had a lot of enemies. The church today around the world has a lot of enemies. Not much has changed. Today, according to research, 340 million Christians, or one out of every eight believers, live in a country where they suffer some sort of persecution. In Nigeria, 3,500 Christians were killed in 2020. 
Every day, 13 believers worldwide are killed because they trust in Christ. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked around the world. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. Five are abducted every day. And yet there are stories among those poor people of what we would call, I would call a modern Ephesians faith because it's what they commended for in Ephesus. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. There's a great church, hardworking, centered in the scripture. They knew the truth and they could ferret out truth from falsity. They were courageous. They were filled with folks who could take the heat, folks who would never give up. It'd be great to be a part of a church like that. But there's more to the story. There's a word of rebuke. When Christ looks at a church, he peers underneath the surface to see what the reality is underneath. Here, all the good the church was doing is overshadowed by a sad reality. There's something wrong in Ephesus, and it's very serious. It might even be something related to their great strength, if we're honest. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. They've left their first love. What does that mean? Well, first here means first in time or earlier. It's a love that, that existed previously in the church. The love which was left was a love that, that these believers first showed. They had it, but they didn't have it anymore. But is that a love for God? Or is it a love for one another? What's gone? I think you can make a case that it is a love for the brethren that's diminished. In the book of Ephesians, Paul commands them to love one another. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma I mean, it's very possible that they were so concerned about doctrinal purity that they forgot to love one another. And the greatest strength of the church could well have easily become its greatest weakness. Maybe it was the Ephesians' diligence in pursuing this doctrinal purity that took a heavy toll on, on whether they really loved one another. It's very hard for a watchdog to smile because they're guarding the place. You remember the warning Paul had given on his last meeting with the elders to maintain doctrinal purity. Maybe that, that desire to maintain that purity had tainted their love for one another. Perhaps the issue of doctrinal, doctrinal purity become a, a source of tension in that church. And they had set aside this love for one another just to make sure they were right. 
But you can also make a case that they so much love doctrinal purity that it was their love for Jesus that now waned. Maybe what they left was not their love for each other, but their love for the Savior himself. If it's a love for Jesus that's in focus here, that's a devastating charge. It says here they left their first love, or in the NIV it says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. The word love, or the word left, usually means to let go of or to leave. In this context, it's probably best translated abandoned. There it is, I'm walking away, or neglect. And if the charge is that they didn't love Jesus very much at all, that's powerful. Because somehow in the midst of their godliness, in the midst of their busyness for the Savior, in their standing for truth, somewhere along the way, they had left Jesus out of their church. Let's be honest. Is that even possible? Well, it must be possible because they did it here in Ephesus. One wonders if Paul sensed this problem 30 years ago when he wrote to the Ephesians and prayed that they might be rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love for Christ. Ephesians 3. Did Paul sense way back then, at the beginning of this great church, that it might lack in the love for Christ department? But here's the saddest part. If that's true, Jesus knew they didn't love him. He's walking among the candlesticks. He knows. And what happened in Ephesus could happen anywhere. And I might say, what happened in Ephesus is probably easier to happen in a place like this. How easy it is to substitute knowledge for a warm heart and walk with Jesus. How quickly we justify our hard hearts by pointing, you know, we do all the right stuff. Look at our calendar. Look at what we got. And we can lose Christ by distraction as easily as by denial. And I think that's what's happened in Ephesus. They got distracted away from Jesus. And in the process, they lost him. But Jesus wasn't going to be fooled. In verse 5, he gives them a simple, he had a very challenging prescription. Verse 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Very simple. Remember how it used to be. Repent, change your mind, change your heart, go a different direction, and then repeat. Do the things you did at first. What a wonderful prescription because it assumes an appoint, some important spiritual truth. You do not regain your first love overnight. A marriage doesn't deteriorate overnight and it doesn't get restored overnight. Healing takes time. So in the spiritual realm. And it begins with what? It begins with a good memory. Think about something. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Reflecting on the past can be a good thing if it leads you to do something differently. 
And if you're struggling spiritually, what do you need to do? Well, you need to take some tiny steps to, go, to get back headed toward the light. If you're struggling, keep on walking in the right direction. And soon you will walk out of the darkness and into the blazing light of the love of God. But we would prefer a quick prayer at the altar. I'll sing some song and we'll be fine. In this age of instant everything, nobody wants to wait. Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to repent. The words of Jesus remind us that while healing is possible, it starts in the heart and the mind. Think about what you've done. When Jesus approaches the man who'd been an invalid for 38 years, he asks him a question. Do you want to get well? John 5. Well, do you want to get well? Why would he ask a question like that? Because he's asking at the, at the level of the will. Do you really want to? Do you want to be changed? If the answer is yes, then he proceeds with the miracle. If the answer is no, then he can't even help you. And we face that challenge. Are we so comfortable in our lives that we don't really want to change? Because if we're that comfortable, Jesus isn't going to help us change. There's nothing more he can say. But if we feel the, the stirring of the Spirit in our lives, then we'll do what Christ says in Revelation 2. We're going to spend some time reflecting on our past blessings. What has it been like? We'll repent of our self-centered living. And we'll do the stuff we did when we loved the Savior and when we loved one another. I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't tell you what those first works are, does he? Just do the things you did at first. At this point, it's very tempting for the preacher to give you that list. <laughs> I'll read your Bible, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on and on. Jesus was rather simple when he summarized the law in two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbors yourself. That should be good enough for us. Do our loving actions. If we'll do those loving actions, the loving heart's going to follow. The feelings always follow actions. If you wait to be kind until you feel kind, you're going to be waiting a long time. And we tell unhappy spouses, act as if you love your spouse, even when you don't feel like it. Because it's easier to act your way into a new way of feeling than to feel your way into a new way of acting. There's profound. Should I say it again? I didn't know it was that profound. It's easier <laughs> to act yourself into a new way of feeling than to feel yourself into a new way of acting. We make decisions. Then he has a word of warning. We must not skip these warnings. In, in verse 5, he says, if you do not repent, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Repent, remember, repent, and do. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What's the lampstand? Well, it's the congregation. It's a place from which the light of the world can shine. 
If you do not do what Jesus says, he's going to remove the church and the city of Ephesus will go dark. Maybe the church continued to go. Maybe their descendants continued the work. They used to gather for Sundays, maybe for generations, but pretty soon it's not going to be a lampstand anymore. The light's no longer going to shine from it. How can God accomplish that? He might accomplish that through persecution. He might accomplish that because they just aren't effective in evangelism anymore. Maybe they're not even evangelizing their own children so that eventually there's no longer a true Christian congregation in Ephesus. But somehow or other, he's going to see to it that there is no longer a lampstand in Ephesus. That's how badly he wants them to come back to their first love relationship. But let me ask a question. How does a church know when its lampstand's been removed? Hmm. Perhaps the church itself will never know because nothing ever changed. God could take his hand off everything and would the church continue as normal? The preacher might still preach. The choir could still sing. The lights still shine. The sound system would still work. Maybe. <laughs> Sunday school would meet. The ushers would ush. The worship team would still sing. People clap, elders pray, students have their gatherings. And God's not there. It would be a religion without reality. It would be preaching without any power. It would be church without Jesus. It's a sad fact that the church at Ephesus eventually ceased to exist. It simply was no more. But perhaps that's better than to continue in a church where Jesus is absent. The, editor, the, the, editor, the letter ends with a word of invitation. Verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so we come to the ultimate question. Are we listening to what God is saying? Each of these letters, it ends with a sentence. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we have ears to hear? Or are we already too distracted by the noise of the world? The Christian faith is a religion of ears. We've got to hear the word of God. God is speaking, but are we listening? The message to the church of Ephesus ends with the promise to those who are overcomers. To the one who is victorious, he said, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The allusion here is to the Garden of Eden. As, as Adam and Eve walked and fellowshiped with God in the Garden of Eden, so Jesus walks among his churches. And Satan robbed Adam of the joy of that fellowship. 
by turning his eyes away from the tree of life to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Man had become already preoccupied with knowledge and lost access to the eternal life in paradise. Was it possible that, that just as Satan had deceived Adam and Eve by focusing their attention on knowledge, he had so then deceived the Ephesians by turning their attention away from doctrinal purity? If so, the promise to those who will repent and renew their love is that they will receive the eternal blessing of living in paradise and of eating of the tree of life. And you know, the bottom line is, it doesn't really matter whether the love lost here is love for each other or love for the Savior. John, 1 John 4 says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister, he's just a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen. Our love for Jesus is seen in our love for one another. They're not mutually exclusive. He writes, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is where? In the paradise of God. Paradise speaks of the personal presence of Jesus. What did he tell the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. If we are faithful in this life, we will in some way know Jesus intimately in the next. I don't think anyone really knows or can exactly say what that means, but it is wonderful. In that day, we will never regret having loved the Lord in this life. If we love him here, we will love him even more there. If we rejoice in him here, we will rejoice in him even more there. To those who are faithful, Christ promises, promises continued intimate fellowship in paradise, sustained at the tree of life throughout all eternity. This text leaves one question for us to answer above all others. Have you left your first love? Has your love for one another grown cold? Has your love for Jesus himself been allowed to just burn out? Have the trials of life caused you to drift away from him. It was during a period of, of prolonged illness and suffering. In 1856, that Elizabeth Prentice jotted down a poem that she later showed to her husband, who liked it, and printed it in a pamphlet and distributed it. When Howard Doan saw the words, he put them to music. It became a song that we sing till this day. The first verse expresses her earnest desire, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee. 
The second verse describes the prayer the church of Ephesus needed to pray. Do we? Once earthly joy I craved, I sought peace and rest. Now, thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love. Does that second line describe the prayer we need to pray? Now thee alone I seek. Give what is best. As we end our study of this first message to the seven churches, may we end it in that spirit and with that prayer in our hearts. More love, O Christ, to thee. Let's pray. Father, I think one of the most heartbreaking thoughts out of this passage is that there is a church that you know so intimately who either doesn't love each other or doesn't love you. And how heartbreaking that would be. And so this morning I ask that you would help us to be honest before you and you alone today. That we would think back to our love, our joy for you when we first came to Christ. That if we drifted from that, we might repent and that you would show us, remind us how to do the deeds we did at first. If we need to clean up our lives, let us do it. If we need to clean up relationships, let us do it. Let us hear from you that we might have ears to hear what the Spirit says and we might leave with a, with a burning passion that we might love you more. In Jesus' name.